Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading yesterday was Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, which is a parable that Isaiah prophesies about the Lord and his vineyard. And in particular, what we find out is that the, the, um, the, the Lord has done everything possible for this vineyard to make sure that it is successful and fruitful, and yet it's not bringing forth the right type of fruit. And so we read in Isaiah 5, verse 1, Now I will sing to my beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful field, fruitful hill, and he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now, go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Last week, the chief priests and the elders came to Jesus and asked him by what authority he did all of the wonderful things he did. And Jesus responds subtly saying that his authority comes from heaven, and also giving an accusation for them that they should have repented at John's preaching. And then he continues speaking. He continues speaking in that same vein of the controversy he's having with those chief priests and elders. In verses 33 to 46, he says this. Hear another parable. 
there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it'll grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Father God, we again come before you. We again come before you asking you to guide us, to help us, to teach us to lead us in the right way to grow in reverence for your son, to be ready to recognize his identity and authority, to be ready to submit to him. We ask, Lord, that you would press this truth deep into us. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. You know, over the course of this week, I started thinking a little bit about some old arcade games and very early video games. A series that actually still exists today of Mario. 
you know, this situation of Mario as he's going through his various arenas, going up and down his pipes, turning up blocks, destroying them. Sometimes he'll run into some turtles, some Koopas. And if he runs into them, then he's at least injured and possibly dead. But if he steps on them, he can actually use them as a weapon. He can send the turtle shell onward so as to attack some other enemies of his. The same turtle being such a danger, and yet also possibly, if done correctly, such a help and benefit. At the very end of our passage, we have a description of a similar but so much greater reality in regard to a stone. It's the chief cornerstone in the right place, but otherwise he's a stone of stumbling. A stone that crushes to powder if it lands on someone in the wrong way. Depends on how the person relates to that stone, how the person relates to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't begin with this stone imagery. He begins instead with another parable about a vineyard. The parable grabs our attention in verses 33 to 39. Here, another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about, and digged a wine press in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. Jesus begins his story, he begins his parable by talking about a householder. This one who owns his own house. And what he does with it is he plants a vineyard. And just like the parable of Isaiah 5, this householder goes out and does everything possible to help the vineyard. To make sure that it produces the proper fruit. Indeed, there are eight points of contact between Isaiah 5 and verse 33. 
of fate things that the master of the house did just like the Lord did to his vineyard in Isaiah 5. Planted it, hedged it round about, and digged a winepress in it and built a tower. But the points of contact, the wording of the eight words that come and are repeated within it, then changes as now the owner goes off into a far country. The owner then leases the vineyard to husbandmen, to farmers, to tenants. And we know something of that reality as we drive around a little bit. And we see lots of farmland. And we know that not everyone who owns that farmland farms it themselves. We know that the Martha Wagner, when she was alive, didn't farm her own farmland, but leased it out to tenants who farmed it. And so this householder is leasing out the farmland. That means he's expecting rent, as we would call it. He's expecting some of the fruit in return for his vineyard that he even planted and prepared for himself. But when the time of the fruit draws near, when it actually gets to be the point in time in which you should receive fruit, and he sends his servants out in order to receive it, the servants, if they come back at all, don't come back with any fruit. They come back empty-handed. Because the tenants beat one, they kill one, and then they stone another. They particularly have that slower execution-style death for at least one. The master is persistent. He gives them another opportunity. He sends more servants just to receive what is his due. But the wicked tenant farmers do the same thing to those other servants. And so the owner of the vineyard looks back thinks about what can be done, isn't just going to send more servants, since clearly that's not working. But he does see his son. And he believes that if his son were to ask for the fruit from these tenant farmers, they would reverence him. They would respect him. The idea behind it is that they would acknowledge who he is and give him the due regard to his status as the son, his status as the heir, his status as really being their master. But as it comes about, verse 38, but when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. 
And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. A lot of times when we're viewing and thinking about literature and movies set in monarchies can have the idea of a very wicked steward. The steward is designed to reign without actually being a king until the king returns or until the queen returns. But so often in our stories that involve stewards, the stewards decide that they want to continue to lead, to continue to have their influence, authority, and power. And so as it comes close to the king returning, or the king or queen coming to age, they start conniving ways instead to kill the heir, to kill the one who is supposed to rule and thus be able to maintain authority and control themselves. These tenant farmers, being in many ways a steward of the vineyard, they have a certain sense of influence and authority over what happens there. They're supposed to pay the fruit to the owner. But when they see the sun, they do recognize his authority, his status as the heir, as the son. But they see it as an opportunity then to seize forever the influence and power they have. They hope that maybe if they just kill the son, they will get the inheritance for themselves. And so the son comes, casts him, they cast him out of the vineyard, and they slay him there. They kill the son. Jesus keeps speaking in verse 40. And he begins not just describing the story, but describing what it's supposed to mean. It's interpretation. And that part takes us from verse 40 to verse 44. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken, 
but on whomsoever it shall fall, it'll grind him to powder. The, the Lord Jesus Christ looks at the chief priests and elders and says, when the Lord comes, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do unto these tenants, unto these farmers? And unlike what the farmers are hoping, that somehow their killing the sun is going to produce some good for them, the chief priests and the elders are rightly able to say, they're going to get it. They're going to get their due from the owner of the house. He will miserably destroy those wicked men. He will harshly deal with those harsh men. And ultimately will take the vineyard from them and lease it out to other husbandmen who will be faithful in what they are called to do. The chief priests and the elders were so, so recently unwilling to give any opinion as to the mission and authority of John the Baptist. But here they can speak about themselves, make a judgment about how their future actions would receive punishment. And Jesus then goes back on. He continues to talk with them. And as he does so often, he asks them about their reading habits. He asks them, have ye never read? And this time he points their attention to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 22. A few verses later, you have the blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. The Hosanna, save us now, that has been quoted by the crowds and by the children in the temple, showing the identity of who Jesus is. And here it is the stone which the builders rejected. The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. The chief priests and the elders would most likely pride themselves on being the builders, protecting the people of Israel, teaching them, trying to ensure that religion and true worship of Yahweh is protected while all at the same time perverting it. They are the builders and they're rejecting Jesus. Jesus then describes himself as the stone. If you're building a house, you're going to want a very solid foundation. That's the number one thing in looking for a house that you're going to be wanting to find because if the foundation is crumbling apart, the whole house will too. And this chief cornerstone, this significant part of the foundation, 
It's not one that you're expecting a builder to say, no, we don't want that. We, we don't want this stone in the house at all, much less as a foundational piece. And yet the chief cornerstone is the one that the builders rejected, but the Lord chose. It's this Jesus, the son, rejected of the stewards, rejected of the chief priests and scribes, rejected of the builders and the elite, but accepted of the Lord. It is certainly marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus says that the kingdom will be taken from them and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now, in the fact of this context of these three parables that are kind of attacks against the chief priests and the elders, the nation being described here is not necessarily supposed to be read straightforwardly as Gentiles, not just non-Jews, though it ultimately does include that. The contrast last week in our parable, if you remember or turn back to them, is not between Jew and Gentile, but between the religious elite and the tax collector and prostitutes. Between the insider among Israel or the outcast of Israel. 21.32 For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. Publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Because they are actually bringing forth the fruits of repentance. Because they are not holding on to whatever they can, not giving to the Lord his due. And then the Lord, the Lord Jesus continues to speak. And he pulls on imagery of stones elsewhere from the Old Testament, particularly Daniel 2 and Isaiah 8. He talks about whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall will grind him to powder. The stone that's placed as the foundational cornerstone that thus can be a very significant stone. It can be a sanctuary to the house of Israel and a sanctuary to this nation bringing forth the fruits. This nation in righteousness that consists of outsiders and any who will admit their need, Jew and Gentile alike, can also cause the breaking of those who would stumble over it. It'll be a stumbling block and an offense and a snare. 
But if instead, instead of the one stumbling over it and thus falling on it, it were to fall on a person, that person would be ground to powder. Just like the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Like it's hit by the stone that was cut by no human hands and crumbled to dust until the stone became a mountain, filling the whole land. And then the question becomes, what is that stone to us? As we are interacting with this, as we are the readers trying to make sure that we understand Matthew's point and what he's driving us to do, this stone, this son, this Lord Jesus Christ, is he to us the chief cornerstone? Or is he to us a stumbling stone, falling upon us even and grinding us to powder? And what ultimately makes the difference? The judgment that came in the parable came against those who did not reverence the son. They did not recognize his authority to the point that they then submitted to it. But instead recognized his status and saw that as an opportunity for gain. The judgment came to those who would not regard him as the son. So too, the judgment still comes to those who would not regard Jesus Christ as the son. Respect him, reverence him in that way, and ultimately come to, as the rest of the Bible consistently says, faith and repentance. And indeed, unlike in the parable, the killing of the son is the point. The master of the house in the parable sends his son hoping that there would be a reverence for the son that would keep him from being killed. But God the Father knew that when the son was sent to the wicked tenants, that we would kill him that we would reject him, that we would look at him and spit in his face and mock him for his claim to be the Lord, for his claim to be the Messiah, for the, his claim to be the Son of God. But he still sent him because he wanted us to have a chance to change our mind and repent to have regard for him after we see him crucified and risen again and ultimately have life and ultimately bear the fruits. Let's make sure we spend some time marveling at this wonderful work of the Lord. And he sent his son to be the rejected stone so that we could be built up as living stones built upon him, the foundational cornerstone of a living house of worship for him.
spend some time worshiping him and thanking him and rejoicing in this very reality. And let's be sure that if we haven't yet, we turn to Jesus Christ. We believe that his death pays for our sin. And call upon him. Calling out for forgiveness and for life. Our passage ends in verses 45 to 46 with a very different response to the parable and interpretation. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. The chief priests and Pharisees understand what Jesus is doing. They understand the pointedness where they are the ones who killed the son and killed the heir. And immediately they start thinking about how they might lay hands on him. How they might seize him. And of course, as we know, after seizing him, find a way to put him to death. The very interpretation of realizing the warning Jesus is giving them is not causing them to then respond to the warning, but to double down. To be offended and intimidated rather than actually trying to respond with a change. But just as been the case before in verse 11, Just as had been the case before in verse 26. They don't say or act what they believe. They fear the multitude, knowing that the multitude takes both John and Jesus to be a prophet. And so they bide their time and wait. And the question then is, will we have a better response? Will we respond to the love of, the, of God the Father sending his Son to save us wicked sinners? Will we respond to the warning that those who stumble over the stone are crushed, those who are, are on the stone falls are ground to pound of powder, but will we heed the warning that those who take him and regard him as the son and see that the Lord has chosen him as the cornerstone are saved, are spared, have him instead as a sanctuary, a holy space, a safe place, a refuge? Are we ready to accept the identity of the son and what he has done for us? Are we ready to see him as a refuge and not as a danger to us.
Father God, I do continue to ask that you would help us to think clearly about your word. And that we would think clearly about your son. May we be amazed and marvel at what you are doing. What you have done for us. May we not be so distracted by what you, what we think we are doing for you, that we not meditate and focus upon what you are doing and have promised to do for us, your people. And may we particularly take the time to worship you and what you have done as we come to the Lord's table as we receive this symbol of the body and blood of Christ. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>